Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Cure. This week on Seizing Life, we present a special compilation of previous episodes focusing on epilepsy surgery. For some epilepsy patients who are eligible for surgery, it can be a truly life-changing procedure, resulting in significant reduction or, in some cases, elimination of seizures. The path to determining eligibility and ultimately deciding to undergo surgery is a long journey of consultations, tests, and ultimately personal introspection and considerations. In this episode, we present the medical and patient perspectives from pre-surgery testing through recovery. We begin with Dr. Joffrey Alaya, board-certified pediatric neurosurgeon at Children's Hospital of Orange County, who spoke with us at Epilepsy Awareness Day at Disneyland about surgical approaches to epilepsy and how the new Rosa robot is impacting those procedures. What makes someone a candidate for surgery? There's a big workup that's done uh, to determine if somebody is an epilepsy surgery candidate or not. Um, First, uh, someone with epilepsy would be worked up by an epileptologist. Uh, and the epileptologist would order an imaging study. They would get an MRI to make sure there's no underlying uh, brain lesion that could potentially be causing the, the seizures. Uh, they would get an EEG or a long-term EEG or VTM, uh, video telemetry, uh, to, to see if they could lateralize or localize what, what part of the brain the seizures are, are coming from. In addition to that, uh, we may get some additional studies such as a PET scan, a PET uh, a SPECT uh, uh, MEG, and these are all other studies that can be used to help localize where the seizures are coming from. And then at that point, uh, and, and, and patients would also get a, a neuropsychiatric testing, uh, and that helps us uh, to localize any sort of deficits, and sometimes it can help lateralize uh, seizures as well. And so all that information is then taken together, and typically um, we would meet as a group with a surgeon, the epileptologist, the neuropsychologist, the radiologist, go over all the studies, and then determine if someone is a candidate or not. It sounds like in order to be a candidate, you really have to be able to zero in on exactly where those, what part of the brain those uh, seizures are originating from. Ideally, um, but once we have the information, we come up with a hypothesis of where we think the seizures may be coming from, and there may be multiple different areas. And so uh, to gather more information, then we can place uh, uh, electrodes uh, directly into the brain or around the brain, um, either on one side or bilaterally, depending on the hypothesis, to then try to capture a seizure and see where that electrical activity is coming from. And what kind of um, surgical procedures can be done in that case? Uh, classically, we would do what's called a craniotomy. We make an incision, we elevate the bone, we open up the dura or the covering over the brain, and then we place electrodes directly on the brain, in particular the areas of the brain that we're con- uh, concerned with the seizure are coming from. Uh, but uh, uh, we can also place dr- uh, electrodes directly in the brain. So instead of doing a large craniotomy uh, through a small, uh, a few millimeter uh, burr hole or, uh, opening, we uh, place an electrode uh, direct stereotactically, so using a special uh, neuronavigation software uh, directly into particular uh, parts of the brain. And uh, this is much well, m- much better uh, tolerated. Uh, there's less blood loss, less pain. Uh, and then we can still gather uh, a lot of Im- important information to help, again, try to pinpoint where the seizures are, are coming from. And so in order to do this, uh, at our institution, for, for example, it, it, historically, uh, uh, people would use frames and uh, their special frames, and you have to calculate exactly where you put the electrode in. But uh, now we use a robotic arm which is uh, uh, the, the, the tool that we use is the ROSA uh, robot. And so I, uh, prior to surgery, I can plan exactly where I want the electrodes uh, to go. 
uh, and then the day of the surgery, uh, I basically make the, the, the small opening, I put a little bolt in the bone, and then pass the electrode down to the target, uh, trying to avoid uh, any uh, important structure, any vascular structures to prevent any bleeding or causing any damage uh, to the brain. And so is the, the Rosa robot that you work with, is that for diagnostic, or are you actually removing part of the brain using that robot? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, so as I was describing, in, in this particular case, it would be diagnostic, so it's to gather more information and figure out where the seizures are coming from. Uh, but once we, we figure out where the seizures are coming from, then uh, uh, we remove the electrodes, and then we, then, uh, we have a, another conversation as to what the next uh, step in treatment would be. And so uh, potentially if it's an area that, that can be resected, we would remove it. Um, if uh, it's a place that can be ablated, we could uh, put a laser ablation probe and, and burn uh, the tissue uh, to give us a similar effect. Um, or if it's in an eloquent part of the brain, some part of the brain that helps us with language, uh, with a movement, and, uh, uh, and we decide we, we, we can't take that part of the brain out, uh, then sometimes we can put uh, electrodes uh, directly on or over the brain that are, that are permanent electrodes that are get, then connected to a generator, which is called the RNS, and that basically detects the electrical activity uh, on the brain, and then when there's a seizure, it'll send a signal to help uh, uh, stop the seizures as well. Uh, and so the ROSA can actually be used for implanting uh, the electrodes initially. Uh, it could also be used to help target and place the um, ablation probe, um, or it could be used actually to place the, the, the depth probe if we're doing an RNS. So it can be used for a lot of different steps in, in the surgery. Dr. Jeffrey Lowe, the John S. Garvin Chair, Professor and Head of the Department of Neurology and Rehabilitation at the University of Illinois at Chicago provided us with an in-depth description of EEG testing and how it is used to localize seizures. One of the end, ultimate end goals here is to try and localize where those seizures are coming from. For surgical workup, that's what we do. Most of the time we do EEG, we put electrodes on the scalp with various adhesives uh, to make them stick, uh, sometimes stronger ones when we do longer term EEGs. So uh, routine EEG is often anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. You only see what's going on during that window that you're looking. So if there happens to be an electrical discharge within that short 20 minute period, you may capture it. If it happens five minutes after you disconnect the wires, you miss it. Um, so during a routine EEG, we may flash lights. Um, we may ask you to hyperventilate, breathe really hard until you get a little woozy. And those are things that can actually induce some of those abnormal waveforms. Uh, during the long-term studies, we'll make you stay up all night. All the things that you're told not to do because you'll have a seizure, we'll stop your medications, we'll make you stay up all night. We'll say, well, I only get seizures when I get stressed. So we, we bring that ex-boyfriend in there and some point <laughs> saying, now they're stressed. We, we want to see the seizures while the EEG is on so we can characterize them, localize them, and make sure we're doing the best treatment. So the EEG is completed, you have your data. How are you reading that data? How do you use that to then help treat the patient? So we sit in rooms with computer screens and we click page by page by page by page. So each page may have about 15 seconds of the brain waves. Um, if you are there for 24 hours or four days, there's a lot. Sometimes we click the pages quickly. Um, we have people who are experienced uh, electroencephalographers who read the EEGs, who have a lot of experience seeing the different waveforms and patterns. Um, and then we drop a report that goes back to the doctor and says, this is our opinion of what we saw. If we're lucky, we capture the epileptic discharges and or seizures that allow us to localize where they're coming from. 
uh, the closer you are to an electrode that produces that signal, the closer in the brain that is. And because we put the electrodes all across the brain, say it's coming from your right temporal lobe, we'll see the electrodes on the right temporal area uh, have a lot more amplitude of the signal than, say, the left side or other parts of the brain. And that's how we localize where the seizures are coming from. Wow. The other thing we do is we never do EEG by itself. We will do an MRI. We will do PET studies. We will do other studies that corroborate. What, what is a PET we, study? Positron emission tomography. So one thing we do is look at the metabolism of the brain. So you inject it with a, a, a glucose, you know, which is food for the brain. Um, and if its uptake goes higher or lower in some areas of the brain, you see that on the PET scan. And that can correlate with an area that has those epileptic waveforms. And when things are concordant, when you see the PET scan abnormality, when you see something on the MRI, like sclerosis or dysplasia, that is in the same location where you see the electrical signals, then you say, aha, we've got it, and we can go after it and do surgery and, and help that person. Hi, this is Brandon from Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, or CURE. For the 65 million people worldwide living with epilepsy, progress is unacceptably slow. At CURE, our mission is to find a cure for epilepsy by promoting and funding patient-focused research. Learn more at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to this episode of Seizing Life. Epilepsy Foundation of Chicago Board Chair Howard Swern provided us with a patient perspective on surgery, describing his personal experience, from the initial determination that he was a candidate through his recovery process. You're, you're going through and you're trying all of these meds and nothing's mm -hmm. working. You're still having the seizures. When did surgery first enter the conversation as an option? I think it was maybe around the five-year time frame. Um, my parents wanted me to get a second opinion at, at Mayo. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went up there. Uh, and after the two-day session that you have up there, their first recommendation was to have surgery. I imagine because they could localize where those seizures were coming Ex from. Exactly. I know that unless you can localize that right. place, then you, know, you, you can't be a candidate for the surgery. So you find out that you are a candidate. What goes through your head? The, I mean, the first response was no. I just can't do it. It was just, I was so scared. And then one day, one night, I had a grand mal seizure. Uh, and I was had to go, after I had the grand mal's the next day, I went in and spoke with the doctors. And he said, my doctor, Howard, listen, I think it's really time that you consider having surgery again. You're a candidate. They know the area. Mm -hmm. It's localized, you know. Um, there's always the pluses and minuses, but I really think that you should be considerate. What did they tell you in terms of what the risks were and what they thought, you know, the cone of possibility was for, right. you know, your outcomes? There's always risk with surgery. Of course. In your brain, there's always a risk. Um, but because of the testing that I went through, that if there were more concerns or problems with the left side, that the right side would handle it because a lot of it is the rehabilitation that you go through about speaking and writing and doing everything right. that your brain just doesn't do at a certain point. And that is really a part of the rehab. So at that point we were, that was the risk. Um, I felt extremely comfortable from the beginning after meeting the surgeons yep. and it was a joint decision, Janine and I, and I, we said yes, Okay, so you have decided to have surgery. surgery. Right. You're walking into the hospital. What is that day like for you? Um, 
we were very, very nervous. I mean, we had just found out that Janine was maybe a month into having our first daughter at the oh time. Oh my gosh. So, you know, I mean, you know, you have to, I signed all the paperwork, God forbid. And you have a child on the way. And we have a child on the way. And you're having part of your brain removed. And I'm having part of my, yeah, part of my brain removed. It's a lot of risk, wow. a lot of concern. So yeah. the pressure, you know, I was obviously not only thinking about myself, but my family. Yeah. How long did the surgery take from beginning to end? Right. So I believe it was approximately five hours that I, you know, was under. Yeah. So, I mean, not, I mean, I, I don't know not how long I bed. would, right. I don't know how long I would expect it to take right. to, to have that procedure done, but mm -hmm. you know, not, not excruciatingly no. long, but you know, not a full day. And so you come out of surgery and, um, I mean, then it's just sort of a waiting game, I guess, right? To see if it worked. Like you right. don't know immediately if it's worked. Correct. I mean, I was in the hospital for approximately five to six days afterwards. Um, you know, that going through some testing, uh, you know, about, you know, how you feeling, you know, having to, you know, use the facilities by yourself, mm -hmm. you know, can you walk? How far can you walk? Um, and, you know, yeah, they seven, six, or excuse me, five to six days went home. Wow. And and what was the recovery period like? Were you, did you have to do PT, OT, speech therapy? I did them all. Um, I think that I was home approximately, I was off of work for about three months. Oh, wow. Right. And through that time, I was going through some physical therapy, speech therapy for approximately two to three times a week mm -hmm. at the hospital, writing, um, all of it because you just, there's no doubt that it's funny to think about it. You know, you could having trouble writing, having trouble talking, you know. Um, but after the therapy, I definitely got back into that. Um, and it felt really good after three months of being at home. And you haven't had a seizure since. 15 years it's been um, since the day I had surgery. Um, I, I mean, I've had two girls healthy girls, um, that it's been an incredible 15 years. Surgery is often not considered as a frontline treatment for obvious reasons. The right. expense, you know, the, the potential risks mm -hmm. are incredibly high, but in some cases, you know, it, it could be considered one of the, you know, first two or three, um, available treatments out there. And, and I think that we're starting to see that wave change right. so that it's not the last available option. Nothing else works, so then you try surgery and you're starting to see that conversation shift a little, which is really right. interesting. I think it's a, great, I, you know, it's a great point to bring it up a little more in the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. So you're not waiting five years, you know, or seven years. Or well, the amount of damage that could be done right. or the risks that you're taking just by living with seizures over that time. Every seizure has an impact on your system. Yeah. Everyone, you know, and so all the people that we know that, again, have a seizure, 10 seizures a day, 15 seizures a day, it just hurts them more and more and more every time. Mm -hmm. And so if, if surgery is one pathway to cut back on that, right, it, it's a better thing for the future, right, to hopefully make their life better in the long term.
The choice to undergo epilepsy surgery is a personal decision in which the patient must weigh the potential benefits and risks in careful consultation with physicians. For some, surgery can provide relief or even complete freedom from seizures. But for too many people living with epilepsy, there is no relief. Though we have made great progress discovering new therapies and medications, over 30% of those with epilepsy do not respond to traditional treatments. That's why CURE is dedicated to supporting patient-focused research to find a cure for epilepsy. To help us achieve our mission, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.